0: So church, we have been trekking through the book of Joshua as we're going through our series, The New Norm. And it's been story after story after story after story of God's faithfulness being exercised as the nation of Israel is taking the promised land, as the Lord is giving that territory to them. But there's a theme that really just blasts out of the text. It just hits us. And it's a beautiful theme, and the theme is this, how God's faithfulness inspires obedience. We're going to be unpacking this in that sequence, how God's faithfulness inspires obedience. And before we dive into the message today, we're going to open up in a word of prayer, and then we'll give this time over to the Lord this morning. So let's go ahead and bow our heads this morning. Lord, I thank you for your, your body, your bride, I thank you for those that are visiting, Father, from uh, maybe this is their first weekend here, Lord. And I thank you that you have given us your word. It's timeless, it's God breathed, Lord. And I thank you that you have given this word to us that we can study it, that we can grow in the knowledge of who you are, Lord. It's precious. And Jesus, we have an appetite. And I pray that you would continue to stoke that appetite within us, Lord, that as we read, as we study, we learn more and more about the person of Jesus as we continue to move through the text. And Lord, we give this entire time to you for your glory, for your honor. I ask and pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just minister to us from the text this morning, Lord. In your mighty, precious name, Jesus, amen. So, if you are able to, I'm going to ask that you stand. We're going to be reading verses 1 through verse 11 aloud. And this again is Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Joshua chapter 11 verse 1 through 11. I'm going to read the odd verses. If you can read the even verses, and I told the first service this, there are some interesting names of kings and of regions within the text. Give it your best shot. It doesn't have to sound perfect. This isn't the spelling bee. Uh, but I want you guys just to uh, do your best to, as we go through this together. So we'll be in Joshua chapter 11, verse 1 through 11. And verse 1 reads, And it came to pass, when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard these things that he sent to Jobab, king of Madan, to the king of Shimron, to the king of Akshaph, to the Canaanites in the east and in the west, the Amorites, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite in the mountains, and the Hivite below Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And when all these kings had met together, they came and camped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came against them suddenly by the waters of Merom, and they attacked them. So Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses, and he burned the chariots with fire. In verse 11, And they struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was none left breathing. Then he burned Hazar with fire. Context. Context, context, context. So we'll start, we'll go right into the end of chapter 10, leading us into what we're unpacking today in chapter 11. So Joshua now, at the end of chapter 10, just returns from an incredible victory in the southern region of the land of uh, the, the promised land. And now what's happened is the kings of the south have suffered a awful defeat, a massive defeat. And what happens now is that there's one more region to take. This is the last region of the last of the military campaigns of the major military campaigns in the promised land. It's the land of the north, what we would call today parts of northern Palestine. And we're going to be unpacking Joshua chapter 11, verse 1 through 5 now. So verse 1 tells us that there's this king. His name's Jabin, the king of Hazor. He hears about the recent victories that have taken place in the south, and now he sees the imminent threat moving to the north. He knows that they are coming for the land in the north. Verse uh, 10 identifies, I'm sorry, the beginning of the section identifies that he, it's the head of all those kingdoms of the north. So now Jabin, in desperation, calls for this coalition of kingdoms in the northern region to align themselves with him. And the Bible tells us that the, the countless soldiers cannot even be numbered. There has the this, this sand on the seashore. And what they're doing is they're creating this unified front, this offensive to stop the nation of Israel. And now this coalition of enemy soldiers are at this place called the waters of Maram, and they are now preparing to engage the Israelites. They're all in this spot. Everyone's suited up. Everyone's ready for war. And now we pick up in verse 6. But the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them. For tomorrow, about this time, I will deliver not some of them, not a portion of them, not a majority of them, but all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn the chariots with fire. So the Bible tells us that the Lord encourages Joshua with this message. He says, Joshua, in 24 hours, I am going to give you. This enemy force that's going to align themselves together against the nation of Israel. And this is the same God who has provided victory after victory after victory after victory to the nation of Israel. This is the same God who would lead the nation out of Egypt after they had been exiled for a 400 year period in captivity. This is the same God who would dry and who would split the Red Sea so there was a dry walking path so the Israelites could get to the destination, which was the Jordan River entering into the promised land. This is the same God who stops the water flowing at the Jordan River so they can cross on dry land. This is the same God who brings down the walls of Jericho. This is the same God who brings down the hailstones upon the victory of the the nations of the south. This is the same God who stops the sun from moving so that the nation of Israel can ultimately annihilate the enemy forces. We see the, 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 the faithfulness of God all throughout this, but what happens is this. It's important we don't miss this. God is simply reminding Joshua. He's providing him with a fresh confirmation of the same promise. The people were reminded that God would give them the promised land. They would take the land. And now the Lord gives Joshua a specific commandment. He says, Joshua, you're to hamstring the horses and you're to burn the enemy chariots with fire. This term hamstring is a a term, something that would use, there's some different um, interpretations regarding the term, but we know it's one of two things from the original Hebrew text. It's either to, to slice the back tendon of the hamstring so that an animal would be utterly useless on the battlefield or it was castration of the horse. So that way the animal, again, has no desire to be in that environment. But he also said, you're to burn the chariots with fire. So the chariots would be utterly useless as they were turned into an ash heap. But I, it's important that we go back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14 to 17, explains this in greater detail. What happens is Moses now is speaking to the nation of Israel. He was given a commandment by God, and he was to share that commandment with the nation of Israel. See, what would happen is the Lord knew what would take place. He says, Moses, when the nation of Israel goes in to inherit the promised land, they're not just going to request that a king gets set above them. They're going to demand that a king gets placed over them because they want to be like the pagan nations. They want an earthly king to rule over them. I'm going to give them that request. I'm going to give them what they're asking for. But in the midst of this, it's important that the king does not multiply three things. The king was not to multiply horses. He was not to multiply wives. And he was not to multiply wealth, gold or silver. See, what happened is the people, the nation of Israel, they were not to be dependent upon the military might. They were not to be dependent upon their affluence. They were not to be dependent upon the things that made them secure and safe. King David wrote exactly about that. He wrote this about this in Psalm 20, verse seven through eight. He said that some trust in chariots And summon horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and we stand upright. Church, what happens is when a nation becomes dependent upon its military might, when a nation becomes dependent upon their wealth, When a nation stops seeking the one true God, and instead they they chase after the idols and the pagan gods of the land, we see time and time again, the outcome is never good. You can open up the Old Testament. I encourage, if you read through Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, what happens when a nation continues in their wickedness, continues in their sin, and does not turn their heart in repentance back, to the one true God. It tells us what takes place. God's word tells us what happens. And are we seeing that unfold in our nation today? Are we seeing those things taking place in America today? The the Bible gives us a clear understanding of what will take place unless the people turn in repentance. See, this is the point, church. Israel was to be different. They were to be different because they were God's chosen people. The bride of Christ is to be different. The bride of Christ is to be different than the culture that we live in. You and I as Christ followers, our identity is not in this world. Our identity isn't defined by what the culture says. Our identity is not defined by what society says because the Bible tells us that you and I, we are set apart. We have been sanctified and we are not to be dependent upon our wealth. We're not to be dependent upon our affluence. We are not to be dependent upon our own strength. These are all blessings that the Lord has given to us. But the moment that these take place take his place in the heart, there becomes a serious issue. So my challenge for us today is to think about this question. Are there chariots, are there horses in our lives today that the Lord is saying, stop. Trust in me. Come back to me. Trust in me. And when I think about that, I think about us as the bride of Christ, but I also think about that In our nation today, we identify with Christ. And this is how. What took place on that cross 2,000 years ago at a place called Calvary. Where Jesus Christ paid for our sins. And then he died on that cross. And on the third day, he resurrected. The God's spirit raised him from the dead. And our part in all of that church. Our role, our our part is to repent and to believe upon the name of Jesus. And so what happens now is when we do that, we identify with Christ to the point, I think we we sang about it earlier, he calls us brethren. He calls us his sons and his daughters. Now, I want to read something out of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 through 11. And it reads, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation, which is Jesus Christ, perfect through sufferings for both he who sanctifies or those who he sets apart and those who are being sanctified, those who are being molded and shaped more and more into the image of Jesus are all one. Do you see the identity factor in that? For which reason he is not ashamed to call us brethren. Praise God for that. Joshua chapter 11, verse 7 through 9. I'll, I'll continue on. So Joshua and his whole army came against them suddenly at the waters of Merom and attacked them. So now it's heating up. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. They defeated them and pursued them all the way to greater Sidon, to Mizraphath, Maim, into the valley of Mizpah on the east until no survivors were left. Joshua did to them as the Lord had directed. He hamstrung the horses, and he burned the chariots with fire. So now, guys, check this out. So the Israelites now are the ones who engage this group of enemy forces at this rendezvous point, the waters of Merom. And what happens is we read in verse 8 that the Lord hands over the entire coalition of enemy forces into the hands of the Israelites. Verse 8 tells us that Joshua is obedient to the specific instructions given to him by the Lord. He chases down the remaining forces, there's no survivors left as they're chasing him down the Mediterranean coast into the east, verse 9 tells us that Joshua, again, does what the Lord commands him to do. He hamstrings the horses, and he burns the chariots with fire. There's an important theme that we talked about earlier that surfaces from the text in this very section. And this is the theme, and this is the sequence. God is faithful to provide victory after victory after victory to the nation of Israel. We can see that. Chapter 12 tells us that 31 kings are handed over to the Israelites as God gave victory after victory. The second is this, is it's Joshua's response. Joshua knew the God that he served. He knew the God that he served was faithful. He knew the God that he served would deliver him because God told him that he would deliver them. And what's important to think about is when we think about the God of the Bible. And one of the things I was sharing in our men's study on Wednesday nights, the reason that I'm drawn to this, the reason that I'm attracted to this, is because what happens is when I open God's word and I read God's word, there's something that continually happens as I read as the Holy Spirit ministers to me. God is revealing himself to us. He reveals himself to us in the Godhead. And when I read and I understand the attributes of God, there's a response from within me that takes place. And it's a response in which I want to be obedient unto the God of the Bible, my God, because he's good. He's faithful. He's merciful. He's long-suffering. He's a God of forbearance, a God of restraint. He's a God of compassion, a God of grace, a God of mercy. The attributes of God, church, they're beautiful. And when I read God's word, they continue. Well, God's just. They continue to surface through the text. I used this analogy earlier. Have you guys ever used a French press coffee maker? Maybe like 2% of the people have, but it's okay. I'm with you, the 2%. So what happens is when you have a French press coffee maker, you fill this thing up with hot water. And then what happens, I know Matt, he's a coffee connoisseur, so he's with me on this. What happens is you take your, 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 your ground coffee, and you put it in this, in this French press. And then you let it sit there for a little while. You can smell it. You mix it in. And what's happening is it's permeating, and it's, it's mixing with the water, but it's changed forever. You can't, you can't get the color out of it. And then after a few minutes, you push down on it, and then what happens? All the good stuff rises to the top. Every time I open God's Word, it's like the French press factor. It just raises to the top, and it's beautiful, it's nourishing, it's tasty, and it brings us back, church, continually to God's Word. When you look back at your life and you think about this attribute, God's faithfulness over your life, from the point of conception, I would say even before that time, to where you're at right now on November 20th, 2022. And you you look and you reflect on God's faithfulness over your life. Wow. I remember being a young boy and I remember our family, after my dad had passed when I was 11, we were so poor that after he passed away, I thought we were gonna be homeless. I didn't, my dad was a breadwinner. My mom made $7.50 an hour working as a secretary. And she was raising my brother and I. I remember what happened is that when my father passed away, there were two things that that terrified me. The first was that I would be without my dad. The second is that we would be homeless. And I remember what happened after my dad had passed away of cancer, a 16-year battle with lung cancer. The church began bringing baskets of food over to the house. Some of you, I think, have heard the story. And there was someone in the church at Calvary Chapel Redlands that was paying our mortgage every single month, so that we could stay in the very house that we made memories in as a family. Every month, it was anonymous. Amount came for the mortgage every month. God's faithfulness, church. That's one of 10 trillion examples of God's faithfulness being exercised, just me personally, in my own life. And isn't that a beautiful thing when we stop and we reflect upon that? Joshua, will continue on in Joshua chapter 11 verse 10 through 11. And it reads, at that time, Joshua turned back. He captured Hazor, and he put its king to the sword. Hazor had been the head of all these kingdoms. Everyone in it, they put to the sword and they totally destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed. And he burned Hazer itself. So now Joshua has finished chasing down those who were in full retreat. And now his attention is to go to Hazor and to take care of that kingdom and the king who instigated the engagement against the Israelites. God's word says that Hazor was the head of all those nations. And verse 10 tells us that nobody in the entire kingdom was spared. Nothing that had breath in its body was spared. And they burned the city with fire. Let me pause there. Some people would read this and they would say, Garrett, how do you reconcile this? I've had discussions about this with, with the atheists and the agnostic. Garrett, how do you reconcile this in the Bible? If your God is a God of love, how could he exercise such a brutal, such an awful judgment against this people? The question or the response to the question is is simple. It was that nation, it was the Canaanites who brought God's judgment upon themselves because of their own sin. Do you see that? Can we all agree on that? That's the response to the question of the agnostic and the atheist. When we answer them, by the way, in love, that is the response. One of the things that is important for us to look at too is why. Why were the Canaanites driven from the land? This is where we get to move through the Bible. We're going to be going back to Leviticus chapter 18. In Leviticus chapter 18, it's a dense section, but the meat of it related to the point today is this. God speaking to Moses tells Moses, I want you to share something with the people. There's sin in the land of Canaan, and the people continue sinning. And because of this, I am going to drive out the nation of the Canaanites in I'm going to use the nation of Israel to be an instrument of my judgment to execute that upon them. But there is a list of things that were taking place in Canaan. And this is the reason why God's judgment was brought upon it. We read that sexual immorality through incestuous relationships were rampant in that nation. Adultery, child sacrifice, bestiality. Homosexuality, these were things that were taking place in this land. I want to read, I want to continue in the text regarding Leviticus chapter 18, 24 to 20 now. I'm going to read this to you. These are the words of the Lord as he's speaking to Moses. Do not defile yourself with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you, for the land is defiled. Strong language. Therefore, I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you. For these abominations the men of the land have done who are before you, and thus the land is defiled, lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it as it vomited out the nations that were before you so my question for us this morning is this is even the pagan nation accountable to god is every people nation tribe accountable to god let's go back to scripture and see what scripture says about it this is romans chapter 1 verse 18 for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Let me paint a picture for everyone this morning. Have you guys ever been in a, in a pool and you're playing with your kids, your nieces, and your nephews and you have a basketball, a water polo ball, it could be a soccer ball, and you're trying to submerge that thing in the water? It's tough. It takes force. It takes energy. It takes Muscle to keep that suppressed. There is an active suppression that takes place. That's what it looks like when one suppresses truth. There is an active suppression, do you see? And it takes force. It takes energy to do that. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them or made apparent to them, for God has shown it to them. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. So the question to the answer that I just asked moments ago, yes, every nation is accountable unto God. Every people is accountable unto God. Think about this now. Let's draw the bridge. Let's draw the big bridge from what we're reading today in the application. Think about what I just read in regards to Leviticus chapter 18 a few moments ago. The sins of the land. Think about where we are at today in America. Wow. Do we see similarities? Do we see things that are unfolding here in America at this very time right now? On November 8th, 2022, we had a big election take place. And what happened is within the election, one of the most important bills that probably has ever, I would say the most important bill that has ever moved through California legislation went and was voted yes on. Some of you may heard it. It's called Proposition 1. Proposition 1, basically what it does now is it enshrines the right to abortion in the California Constitution. These are now considered our, our California values in California. Some would say, well, Garrett, this is a political issue. I would say this is not a political issue because I bring it back to God's word and God's and God's word reminds us this is a, this is a morality issue. So now with that picture painted, how are we as the bride of Christ? How are we as Christ's followers called to stand and what are we called to do? I remember we went to Ironwood last Friday and Pastor Ron was preaching was speaking on 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 to to 2021. 20, And our mission church, our objective, was given to us 2,000 years ago on the top of the mountain prior to the ascension of Christ. He says, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is our commission. That is our assignment. That is our holy privilege that has been entrusted to us. How are we to stand we're called to be salt and light through the ministering, through the preaching of God's word, and we're also called to stand for righteousness, even when standing for righteousness goes against the moral code of the culture. Do you see that? Even when standing for righteousness leads to persecution, even when standing for righteousness is not popular. Jesus knew what this was. He reminded us of this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. He says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, and they say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Wow. What are we called to do as Christ's followers? This may be a hard pill to swallow. This may be difficult for everyone in this room to hear. It was difficult for me, and God convicted me by his Holy Spirit, and now my prayers have changed. We are called to pray for those in positions of leadership. We're called to pray for our governor. We're called to pray for our assemblymen, our assemblywomen, our congressmen, our senators, our president, and our vice president because of this. Paul would remind Timothy in Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, he would say, Timothy, pray for those in positions of power. And that ultimately, they would come to the knowledge of truth in Christ Jesus. We can never forget that. We can never forget how important it is, and we have been commissioned to do that. So will we do it? Will we do it? We have a group of men on Wednesday nights who we keep each other accountable in terms of our prayer life, in terms of our walk, in terms of what we're doing. And that is a prayer that was hard at first for us to begin praying, and then we begin praying more and more often like that, and it's changed everything. What are we called to do? How are we called to stand In January 30th, 1933, there was a a man in Germany who was just voted in as Chancellor of Germany. His name was Adolf Hitler. What happened is in 1933, this is just related to our position and how we're called to stand. In 1933, there was something called the Enablement Act that was passed. This This was two months after he was brought in as Chancellor in Egypt. I'm sorry, in Germany, not Egypt. He wasn't Pharaoh. So this is the thing that happens. This is what happens. He's brought in the Enablement Act is passed. And then what happens is the Jews start getting pushed out of society. Their businesses are boycotted. And then what happens is this. The German party, the Nazi party says, you are to no longer have Christian pastors that are of Jewish ethnicity preach from your pulpit. You got to pull them back. They cannot do that. That's against what we're, what we're mandating. Well, what would happen is during this time, the church, the Protestant church in Germany was split. They didn't know what to do. It actually split into three different groups, three different camps. 18,000 Protestant churches were broken up this way. Out of the 3,000 of the 18,000, they aligned themselves to Adolf Hitler. They flew in front of their churches, swastikas with crosses on them they aligned themselves with the anti-Semitic ideologies of the Third Reich. They completely compromised. They backed up. They let the state take over what was being preached. They pulled pastors from the pulpit. 12,000 churches didn't know how to stand. They were terrified. What do we do? How do we stand? And what happened is there was this last camp of 3,000 churches, and they identified, they deemed themselves with this title, the Confessing Church. 3,000 churches said, you are not going to tell us that we have to pull pastors that have a calling upon their life to preach the word of God from the pulpit. We're not going to pull them. They continued to preach the message of the gospel when it was dangerous. They continued to stand for righteousness even when it led to persecution. Out of those 3,000 pastors that stood for righteousness, 700 of them disappeared. The Nazis arrested them because they were not aligning themselves to what Adolf Hitler had wanted. He wanted a one evangelical pro-Nazi church in Germany. And they said, no, that goes against everything that we are called to do. We're called to preach God's word and we're called to be salt and light. We're called to stand for righteousness. I want to share that with you because it's important that we look at this point. This was early 1930s. Fast forward to 1945, the end of the Holocaust. Do we think, did they think that the atrocities that would take place within a 10-year period were even possible? Six million men, women, and children, their lives taken from them, because they were identified as deplorables. They were identified as the unwanted. They were a threat to the state. I share this with you because it's important that we look at that. When we're reminded of what we're called to do, how we're called to stand church, it's so important. Do we ever think that in 1973 or 1979, that at the passing of Roe v. Wade, that we would be where we're at today? Never. But it's important for us to look back at that in terms of what we're called to do and how we're called to stand and not waver from our commissioning, even when it gets hard, even when it gets tough. Last, the next point is this, is God's forbearance. This is a beautiful, this is one of my most favorite as I'm, as I'm going through this message in preparation. This is one of the most beautiful points the Lord reminded me of in, in the text. It points to God's forbearance, his restraint upon this nation of the Canaanites. In Genesis 15, we read about what happens. The Lord calls Abraham outside, and he says, Abraham, look at the stars in heaven. Look up. Abraham, do you see the stars in heaven? I am going to make a nation so big, so enormous, and they're going to come, you are going to be the father of this nation. And what's going to take place is I'm going to give the promised land to this nation. But in this very location in which he's meeting with Abraham, as this covenant is established, he says, Abraham, it's, now is not the time though. They're not going to take this territory right away. Four generations will go by and then they will come back to this very place because the measure or the fullness of the sins of the Amorites or the Canaanites has not yet reached its fullness. Do you see the link in that? Hundreds of years have gone by. God in his patience, his long suffering, his forbearance, giving the people opportunities to turn their hearts to him, to repent to him, but there was no progress made in that area. So now the Lord says, Joshua, Israelites, you are going to be a vessel of an instrument of my judgment upon this land, and I'm going to use you to take this area. God refrained. And what I think about too, just... Again, going back to the attributes of God. Isn't he patient? When you look at your own life, I look at my life, the Lord has been, I I can't even, there's no words to declare how patient he has been with me, how merciful he has been to me, how compassionate, how kind he has been to me. Maybe I'm the only one. I don't think I am, but maybe I'm the only one because when I look back at my life and I see God, when I look at your scripture, I see your forbearance, I see your patience, I see your mercy and your grace literally just being exercised over my life, not every hour, not every day, moment by moment. And it's important that we remember that. It's important that we hold fast to that because, again, it gets us into this portion. As we're getting ready to close, Joshua chapter 11, verse 23. It reads, so Joshua took the whole land, according to all the Lord had said to Moses, and Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel, according to their division by their tribes. Then the land rested from war. This is the end of chapter 11. We read about the outcome. The north has been defeated. The major military campaigns have, been, have come to an end. And now the distribution of land to the 12 tribes is, being, is getting ready to take place. I don't want to go too far ahead now, but going into chapter 12, we see a summary of the kings, a summary of the regions that belong to those kings that were taken by the nation of Israel. How many nations, how many kings were taken by the Israelites? The Bible tells us 31, 31 kings and 31 nations were taken by the nation of Israel And I want to close us off with this important passage or, or thought as we walk away and as we enter into worship. And this is going to close us off, but this is the theme. And it goes in this sequence God was faithful to deliver territory after territory, kingdom after kingdom, nation after nation to the Israelites. Joshua was obedient. To follow what God had called him to do in leading the Israelites to accomplish what God had given them to do. My heart and my prayer is for us as the body of Christ, for us as a church, as Christ followers, is that we would be like Joshua. That we would be obedient unto what God has called us to. That we would be, that we would be obedient to the commissioning that he has given us and that we would not falter, that we would not waver because this important for us to also remember he has given us all the resources of heaven by his holy spirit which he has given to us as his gift that should be encouraging to everyone this morning and as we lead into worship i just want to encourage us with that word that we have been given god's spirit we are sealed by god's spirit it's a guarantee for heaven but He has empowered us to do the work he has called us to do in the dark days that we live in today and praise god for that i love you church Thank you. We'll open up.